Recorded live. Hello, this is William Tank, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, November 21st, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we'll be returning to our series, Martin Luther, in Life and Death. I know that a lot of people are anticipating our return to our presentation of the Protocols of Satan. We will indeed do that, Yahweh willing. However, to me, I'm conflicted, I'm tossed up, because to me personally, you can't really understand the, the, the setting, the historical setting and, and background um, necessary to understand what was going on with all the secret societies in the 17th and 18th centuries, 18th and 19th centuries in Europe, I'm sorry. It, it's necessary to understand what really happened during the Reformation. That the Reformation, that there were nefarious forces behind the Reformation. And those nefarious forces really wanted to upset Christian society altogether. And the humanists, the pagan humanists that had joined forces with Martin Luther, their um, intellectual successors were the ones behind the, the, the Christian equation, or I should say not even Christian, the, the white equation in, in the secret societies. So that this is just later generations of the same um, intellectually similar, anyway, people. It, it's the same struggle. The struggle that began with Martin Luther had um, culminated with the Protocols of Zion. That's the way I look at it. So I would like to go back to this Martin Luther series and at least get it to a certain point in Martin Luther's history before returning to the Protocols because I think that some of that background is prerequisite. I hope I expressed that um, correctly anyway. In the last two segments of our series... And, and this segment is subtitled The Point of No Return, only because that's the point in Martin Luther's career we will be at at the end of this evening. In the last two segments of our series, Martin Luther in Life and Death, we hope to have demonstrated that the Protestant Reformation was not only religious, but it was also political, and that regardless of the religious principles, it is absolutely naive to think that the princes of Germany joined the Reformation because of religious principles alone. Rather, politics was much more responsible for the success of the Reformation than religion. If it were not for certain German princes and their enmity with the Pope of Rome, Martin Luther would have been burned at the stake well before his Lutheran church ever became established. And while we may begin to understand a lot of the politics, the sinister forces behind some of the players shall forever remain in the shadows. A backdrop, a backdrop to Luther's Reformation with the Italian Wars, which spanned over 60 years, and most of Luther's life. 
involved at diverse times with the French, the Spanish, the Austrians, the Germans, the Venetians, English, Scots, and, of course, the Popes. The papacy had been reduced to the role of just another political player in the struggles for the political control of the various parts of Europe. But when the papacy, but the papacy had an advantage because it was attributed with ecclesiastical authority when its ecclesiastical authority was challenged by the religious reformers. The objectives of the reformers simply became a tool used by the political players to undermine the authority of the popes. Some German princes put their lot with the reformers, hoping to gain greater power or at least greater autonomy for themselves. Others chose to remain allied to the popes as Roman Catholics, but their decisions were usually for relatively the same reasons, for political reasons. In the background of the political struggle, we begin to see how the humanists of Germany had rallied to Martin Luther's cause. We described how those humanists, once they realized the value of Luther's rebellion against the papacy, had begun writing books and pamphlets propagandizing in favor of Martin Luther. We saw how many of the pagan humanists who had opposed the scholarly theologians for so long were suddenly themselves transformed into Christian theologians virtually overnight. While humanists inside of the church had also rallied to Luther's cause. These humanists soon found themselves at the lead of Luther's reform movement, and the two most prominent among them were Philip Melanchthon and Ulrich von Hutton. Melanchthon was within the church, and Hutton was more or less without, even though he worked at the court of the Archbishop of Mayence, or Mainz, if you will. Melanchthon was the grandnephew of Johann Reuschlin, and Hutton had been one of the more active of Reuschlin's many humanist supporters. As we have also seen, Reuschlin, while he was a churchman, was a student of the Talmud, and especially the Kabbalah, and he had waged a lengthy campaign against conservative Christian officials or conservative Catholic officials who sought to destroy the writings of the Jews. So the pagan humanists had joined Reuschland's efforts as a champion of the Jewish cause. Much earlier in the series, we had seen that many of those pagan humanists were of indiscernible ethnic origin, as they had taken to writing under Greek or Latin pseudonyms. While the Jews were not in the foreground of the Reformation, we can be assured that they were certainly in the background. And after the Reuschling controversy, the same pagan humanists had rallied to Martin Luther as their next opponent to Catholic Church authority. They failed with Reuschlin. They picked up the fight with Luther. But Luther did have some antagonists 
among the humanists, some notable ones. Erasmus never joined the Reformation, and he had openly opposed some of Luther's doctrines. And Reuchlin himself had also opposed Luther, even writing to the Bavarian authorities in opposition to him. On the other hand, Erasmus had sung the praises of Melanchthon, and Reuchlin was Melanchthon's uncle, great-uncle, technically. However, the humanist Melanchthon was also lauded by Luther, and the two men became very close. Neither did the pagan humanists appreciate Luther at first, and even Ulrich von Hutten originally saw Luther as just another monk arguing over petty dogmas. Von Hutten became a supporter of Luther for his own purposes and not for Luther's religious merit. If it were not for the support of the humanists, Luther would have been just another voice in a crowd of petty dissenters. There were other reformers who were at least as worthy as Luther, but many of them were too extreme for the German princes. They wanted to change. The German princes wanted change and to be free of the popes, but they did not want too much change. The freedom they wanted was mostly for themselves and not necessarily for the spiritual relief of their subjects. So we left off this series last July with Part A, which was subtitled, Politics and Religion Must Mix. That is not to say that Christians should get involved in the worldly political process. They certainly should not. Rather, the point we tried to make is that if Christians are ever to create the kingdom of heaven, they must be the political process, not be a part of it. They must be it. In the time of Luther, Lutherans themselves were divided over a solution to their quandary, whether to win their cause by scholarly persuasion or force of arms or open revolt. But none of those methods would have actually succeeded. And in fact, we will see soon that, not this evening, but soon in the series, that open revolt revolt failed miserably. None of those methods would have succeeded if they had not won certain German princes to their cause, princes who would agree to adopt Lutheranism and fight against the outside forces to protect it in their own lands. So without the political allies, the religious revolution would have failed. The lesson we must learn from the last 500 years of our history is that our Christian religion must be our politics as well as our faith. The German politicians, as well as the pagan humanists, were quick to come to the side of the Jews and demonstrated that by their continued defense of Reuchlin. This also proves that Germanism alone without a solid Christian foundation, had no defense against the Jews. The Reformation ultimately succeeded, but it only succeeded for political reasons, and the humanists who made it succeed were more than friendly to the Jews. 
So while Protestant churches opposed the tyrannical popes, they never opposed Jewry, and they even supported it. When Luther finally awoke to the treachery of the Jews, it was too late, and his church never followed his call. The truth is that the Christian religion must also become Christian politics, and if we refuse to mix the two, we assure our own destruction. In spite of all its other faults, the Catholic Church managed to suppress the Jew. The Protestants failed to do so and embraced them instead. The pagans and humanists were the primary reason why the Protestants in Germany failed to do so. It is no mistake that Philip Melanchthon, the nephew and student of the foremost defender of religious liberty of Judaism in the Germany in the 16th century, became the second most important man in the Lutheran church, only behind Luther himself. Today, the decline of America and all of the West is evident in the rise of the Jew, because we now have taken Christian practice and Christian morality from public life in order to appease those same Jews. We can only find redemption and salvation when we bring our politics under the shield of our Christian religion and acknowledge that Christ is king while the infernal Jew is his eternal enemy. We at last discussed three men, Ulrich, Duke of Württemberg, Ulrich von Hutten, and Franz von Sickingen. The Duke of Württemberg we will probably revisit later in our series of presentations. This Ulrich Duke of Württemberg appears to be one of the signal examples of the noblemen who joined the Reformation not for religious reasons, but for political reasons. He was a murderer, an adulterer, and an oppressor of the poor and therefore he could hardly have cared much about religion. Ulrich von Hutten, the notable pagan humanist writer, had realized the value of Luther's position against the Roman Church and how it may be used to advance his own humanist agenda. He initially received help from Erasmus, which enabled him to support the cause of Luther, even though, as we have noted, Erasmus had theological disagreements with Luther. We had already explained at length how the pagan von Hutten had earlier gained employment in the court of a Catholic bishop. So Erasmus arranged for Hutton to leave the court of the Archbishop of Mayence, or Mainz, while continuing to collect his salary. That situation also reflects the great influence of Erasmus himself, who, as we have previously demonstrated, was a churchman who was a humanist, who had pagan sympathies, and who was the hero of pagan humanists. During a campaign in 1519 for the expulsion of his longtime enemy, the Duke Ulrich of Württemberg, Ulrich von Hutten became associated with Franz von Sickingen. Like von Hutten, 
Von Sickingen could also be characterized as a robber knight, selling his services to the higher nobles of Europe. At Hutton's instigation, Sickingen even became involved in the late stages of the Reuschland controversy on the side of the humanists and Jews. These two men supported the election of Charles V as emperor, hoping to persuade him to the Protestant cause. However, to their disappointment, Charles remained a Catholic. Later on, however, even though Charles was opposed to Luther's theology, he never really took up arms directly against the reformers. Sickingen was a knight powerful enough to execute wars against the cities of Hesse. And in support of Reuschland, he threatened the same against Cologne and the Dominican monks. Eventually, he and Hutton succeeded for a time in silencing the monk, Jacob Hoogstraten, the leading opponent of Reuschland and the books of the Jews. The intervention of, his, of the Pope, the de Medici Pope Leo X, restored Hoogstraten to his position. At the same time, Luther and Hutton began working together rather closely. This is an unlikely pair, as the one was supposedly a pious Christian, and the other was a licentious pagan who ultimately died of syphilis. But Luther, the Christian, began, began adulthood as a humanist pagan in the company of pagans, and Hutton, the pagan, worked from within the court of a Catholic bishop. In the early months of 1520, Hutton and Luther began a public alliance through Hutton's friendship with Philip Melanchthon, a fellow humanist and a fellow ally of Reuschland, his own great uncle. When the Reuschland cause was finally lost, von Sickingen offered Reuschland shelter, and he instead, Reuschland instead chose to remain within the Catholic orthodoxy, resigning to his defeat. Around this time, Reuschland began publicly writing against Luther, turning on his former supporters, which also caused his estrangement from his own nephew, Philip Melanchthon. Reaching out to Luther, Hutton promised him protection if his rebellion against the Pope threatened his personal being. Hutton was confident in his promise because of the military capability of his friend, von Sickingen. We had seen that in chapter 12 of his book, A Short History of Germany, Ernest F. Ernest F. Henderson described Sickingen in this manner. Sickingen was a robber knight, but with certain noble traits, and with such a conception of his calling, that one wonders if he ought not rather to be put on the level of a belligerent prince. In carrying on feuds, he seldom aimed lower than a duke or a free city of the empire, and there are persons who insist to this day that his weapons were only drawn in favor of the oppressed and of those to whom justice had been denied. Be that as it may, he was not above exacting enormous fines and being an excellent manager. He greatly increased his family possessions. He was the lord of many castles, the chief of which were the Ebenberg near Kruznach and the Lahnstuhl near Kaiserslautern, which he furnished with splendid defenses. 
Here we will return to our primary reference for these presentations, the history of the German people at the close of the Middle Ages by Johannes Janssen, Volume 3, Book 5, published in an English translation by A.M. Christie in London in 1900. Because of our long absence from this topic, we will repeat the point where we left off from the bottom of page 111, where Hutton and Luther began their alliance, and our author is speaking of Hutton, where he says that in the year 1519, his relations with the Archbishop of Mayence, from whom he received a salary, had debarred him from a public alliance with Luther. But in January and February 1920, I'm sorry, 1520, he made advances to the reformer through the medium of Melanchthon, to whom he wrote on January 20th, Sickingen has charged me to make known to Luther that in case of his encountering opposition in his struggle and having no hope of better help from any other quarter, he is to turn to him, and he will do all he can. Believe me, he will scarcely obtain more trustworthy help in any other quarter. Luther is beloved by Sickingen. His letter from Steckelberg on February 28th was still more pressing. Make haste and convey to Luther the message I sent him from Sickingen, but pray between ourselves. I do not wish anyone to know of my being mixed up in this affair. If difficulties accumulate round him, he has no need to seek help from any others. With Franz at his side, he may safely defy all his enemies. I am projecting great and important schemes with Sickingen. Were you here, I would privately tell you all about them. I hope a bad end will overtake the barbarians and all who help to keep us under the Roman yoke. My dialogues, the Romish Trinity, and the onlookers are already in the press. They are remarkable for great freedom of expression against the Pope and the bloodsuckers of Germany. And of course, by the term barbarians, the pagan humanist Hutton was describing the Orthodox Dominican monks and Catholic monks. As for the reference to the bloodsuckers of Germany, we have already described at length the indulgences dispute where the popes of Rome were using the German people for a constant supply of revenue, and they also had other ways of garnering money from them. Speaking of Hutton's dialogues, our author continues. In the first dialogue, Hutton says, against the poison which exudes from the heart of the pope, there is no antidote. His protecting shield is a sure refuge when all other forms of imposture, stratagem, deceit, trickery, cunning, and artifice have failed. The Pope is a bandit chief, and his gang bears the name of the Church. Why carry we thus? Has Germany no longer any sense of honor? Has Germany no spirit left? If the Germans have none, the Turks will have plenty. The sword of the Turks must be called in if the Christians have no spirit and go on letting themselves be fooled by superstition and will not stir to punish the wrongdoers. 
There were three evils he wished to see befall the Roman cesspool, the seat of corruption, plague, famine, and war. Rome is a sea of impurity, a mire of filth, a bottomless sink of iniquity. Should we not flock from all quarters to encompass the destruction of this common curse of humanity? Should we not set all our sail, saddle all our horses, let loose sword and fire? Of course, such revolutionary writings are often purposely cynical and typically offer irrationally extreme solutions to the problems for which they seek redress. That's certainly what we see here. But from our own Christian nationalist perspective, we can see and lament just how quickly Hutton would sacrifice European racial integrity even more than it had been violated by expressing a willingness to turn the fate of Germany over to the Turks in order to defeat the popes. The threat, however, was very real. The Turks were making constant warfare at this time against Christendom and had made gains into Central Europe and had Vienna under siege in 1529, a siege that lasted for the good part of the year. And while it failed, that's just a few short years after Hutton is writing this. Continuing with our source on page 112. In April 1520, after the publication of the above pamphlet, Hutton had an interview at Bamberg with his ally, Crotus Rubianus, which was followed by important results for the cause of the League, meaning this league between the humanists and Martin Luther. The intention of the Confederates was to bring their collective influence to bear on Luther in order to drive him to the most extreme measures against Rome and to make use of him as a tool for their politico-clerical revolution. Now, this Crotus Rubianus, the name should be familiar to our listeners, he was a prominent pagan humanist of the time, and as we had seen early on in this series, he was a close friend of Luther's before Luther had joined the monastery. He was one of those German pagans who went to the extreme of calling himself by a Latin name, which in effect was also, as we had explained much earlier, a renunciation of his German heritage, if indeed he had German heritage. He seems to have. With these um, medieval scholars who wrote with Latin under Latin and Greek names, it simply can't be told when their real names are not known. With many of them, their real names are known. With many of them, their real names and backgrounds were not known. Our author continues, from Bamberg in the same month, Crotus once more appealed by letter to Luther as the greatest of theologians, the most excellent Polycletus, urging him to persevere in his path. The creatures that a pope might boast as they would and praise the infallible teaching of the church, but he, meaning Luther, he held by the text, thy word is a lantern to my feet and a light unto my path. 
It was for Luther to undertake the protection and custody of this light, and he would do well to comply with the invitation of Sickingen, the great leader of the German nobility. Luther's life was threatened by his enemies, but with Sickingen, he would find security against all their plots. Be careful of the future, is my advice. Write to Sickingen. Keep yourself in his favor. Now, the reference to Polycletus seems to be a reference to the Greek sculptor, famous for endeavoring to specify beauty and exacting physical proportions. It doesn't seem to be a reference to the Polycletus, who was a freedman of Nero Caesar and was actually later sent to Britain to, um, to investigate what happened in the uprising of Boudicca. Here we see that not only Melanchthon, but also Luther's old friend, Crotus Rubianus, was employed to ensure that Luther would accept an alliance with Hutton and Sickingen, continuing with our volume from page 114. The morbid terror of pursuit and assassination from which Luther was already at that time suffering was greatly increased by these warnings of danger to his life. On April 16, 1520, he wrote to Spalatin that he had been warned that a certain doctor of medicine, now in his book on the Jews and their lies, Luther was actually complaining about certain doctors of medicine that he believed poisoned him. And that was written in 1543, 23 years after this. He wrote to Stalatin that he had been warned that a certain doctor of medicine, who by means of magic could make himself invisible at will, had been sent to kill him, and that his fears had been specially aroused by Hutton. Hutton cannot be urgent enough in his warnings, he wrote. He is so dreadfully afraid of poison on my account. This terror of pursuit grew later into a perfect monomania. Luther, carried away by the rush of the forces once let loose, followed the advice of Crotus. He wrote to Sickingen and Hutton even before the later had ventured into open alliance with him. In May 1520, the knight Sylvester von Schomburg also assured him of his protection. And on June 4, 1520, Hutton wrote openly to him from my aunts, under the watchword of long-lived freedom, he begged him to make a common cause with them, and casting off his pagan opinions, he put himself suddenly forward as a champion of the gospel and spoke in biblical language. We have not labored altogether without result here. Christ be with us. Christ help us, for it is his precepts we are fighting for, his teaching obscured by the mist of papal institutions that we are bringing to light again. You successfully, I, according to my powers, the words of Hutton to Luther, we hate the assembly of wicked persons and we will not sit in the seat of the scornful. Now, not for nothing, but in Hutton's time, even though he was a pagan and a humanist, he would have been very familiar with the scriptures because 
even then, the scriptures were the basis for academic learning, and all schoolboys had read them, usually in Latin. So we see how quickly Hutton can pretend to be a pious man of God, if perhaps it will advance his pagan humanist cause. How many of them do we have today? Note the call for freedom by Hutton which has been an ideal of all the European revolutions which followed. But Hutton's freedom is not liberty in Christ. Rather, it is a freedom seeking licentiousness quite consistent with the same sort of freedom which has been promoted by Jews throughout European history. Now, Hutton was certainly of German lineage, but he must have been a Jew between the years. Hutton's desired freedom is antithetical to Christian liberty, and despite all of their faults, the Orthodox Catholic clergy were the primary obstacles to its realization. They were the obstacles to the descent into the hedonism that we have today. Adolf Hitler understood that, and that, for that reason alone, he valued the two churches. For no other reason, but for that reason, because they upheld moral values, at least on the outside. Speaking of where Hutton first brings Luther to the attention of Sickingen, on page 296 of Ernest F. Henderson's A Short History of Germany, the author also mentions Sylvester von Schomburg, of whom there is little information. And he says, Hutton now talked to Franz Sickingen of Luther, and little by little, the knight became thoroughly interested in the man whom the Romanists so hated and pursued. He at last sent word to Wittenberg that should Luther, through his teachings, come into difficulties and have no other resource, his castles were at his disposal. It was about this time that another night, Sylvester von Schomburg offered to come to the reformer's aid with a hundred followers. Luther was pleased, if only for the moment, and he wrote to Spalatin, Schomburg and Sickingen had made me secure from the fear of man. Now, those hundred followers, we will learn shortly, were actually a hundred noblemen, so they would have raised an army much longer, much larger if they, if they had to. Now to return to the history of the German people at the close of the Middle Ages from page 114, continuing with Hutton's initial letter to Luther, our author relates that nevertheless, look well before you and keep your eyes open and your senses about you. Hutton trying to encourage Luther. Be strong and fear not. In me you have a champion at every turn. Therefore, be not afraid for the future to confide all your plans to me. We will fight together for liberty and set free the fatherland, so long held in bondage. Sickingen urges you to come to him. He will entertain you in a manner worthy of your dignity and protect you valiantly against enemies of all kinds. Today, I start my journey to Ferdinand. 
I shall lose no time in doing there what I can for our cause. And we will clarify that shortly. In Luther's circle, great expectations were based on this journey, Hutton's journey to Ferdinand. Melanchthon wrote on June 8, 1520, Hutton is betaking himself to Ferdinand, brother of King Charles, Charles V, the emperor, in order to prepare the way for freedom by the aid of the mightiest princes. What then may we not hope for? For the expenses of this journey to the court of Brussels, Hutton received money from Archbishop Albert of Mayence, with whom he was still on friendly terms, in spite of all his scurrilous writings against Rome. The archbishop probably reckoned on the possibility that in the event of the hoped-for separation of Germany from Rome and the establishment of a German national church, the dignity of head of this church might fall to him. We will see later on this evening that that is also what Martin Luther had proposed later on, later on that same year. Hutton has been here. Agrippa von Nettesheim wrote from Cologne to a friend on June 16th with several other members of the Lutheran party who are letting fly their shafts at the courtiers, as they call them, and the Roman legates, who are also full of hostility to the Pope himself. They are preparing the way, if God does not hinder it, for a great insurrection and are urging on certain German princes with ardent appeals to shake off the Romish yoke. What have we to do, they are clamoring, with Romish bishops? Have we not bishops and primates in Germany? Germany must have done with the Romans and return to her own primates and bishops and pastors. You see what they are aiming at. Already some of the towns and the princes are lending willing ears to them. What the might of the emperor may be able to accomplish, I know not. And later on in this series, we will actually discuss the religious wars which were fought. that were actually a, an uprising of the commoners, which were fought over a three or four year period shortly after this. And the commoners were united behind those same ideas. Because our primary source has not yet adequately expressed the precise reason for Hutton's travel to Brussels, we will try to fill in what detail we can garner from page 296 of Ernest F. Henderson's A Short History of Germany, and a section subtitled Hutton in Danger from the Pope because this trip to Brussels actually was pretty costly for him. And Ernest, Ernest Henderson says, in the meantime, Hutton's affairs had taken a new turn. The matter is somewhat obscure, but it seems clear that about the time of Charles V's arrival in Germany, the poet had the definite prospect of a position at the court of the Archduke Ferdinand and set out for Brussels rejoicing profoundly that a new field for his activity had thus been opened. Hutton goes to Ferdinand, writes Melanchthon, to prepare a path for liberty with the aid 
of the great princes, meaning Charles V and his brother Ferdinand. What hopes may we not justly cherish? On the eve of departure, Hutton wrote to Luther, renewing his protestations of absolute and entire devotion and urging him to fight for the common cause of liberty and to free the oppressed fatherland. We have God on our side. If he be with us, who can be against us? Today I start on my way to Ferdinand to work for our cause as best as I can. Hutton reached Brussels, but what happened to him there is clouded in obscurity. And the next that we hear, he is hurrying back as a fugitive to the refuge offered by the castle of his knightly friend, meaning Sickingen. The Pope, meanwhile, had awakened to a sense of this man's importance and roundly, ra roundly raiding the Archbishop of Mainz for having had him in his service, had sent word to a number of princes that Hutton must be seized and sent to Rome. Warnings of intended violence were sent him by his friends and caused him, in terror for his life, to write an appeal to the German nation. Was he, who had worked for the common good, to be torn with impunity from the land of his birth? Was he to be forced to leave altar and hearth and to be dragged, not even to a miserable life in exile, but to cruel tortures and, shame, and to shameful death? In, um, that this shows Hutton's paganism in, in ancient Greece, suppliants that faced danger would, would, would be able to find refuge in any pagan temple where they would not expect to be torn from the altar. They would be suppliants to the god of the temple. And as long as they remained in the temple, they were safe. So that's what Hutton refers to there. Help, help, my countrymen. Let not him who has undertaken to loose your chains himself lie in bondage. Now, while we may never know just how Hutton got himself into trouble in Brussels, we should also observe the attitude here attributed to the Archbishop of Mainz, who we have previously shown had indulged in a very extravagant and lascivious lifestyle at the expense of his German subjects. And now he's quietly standing by in the shadows to see if he could indeed become the head of the German church and continue to bilk the people. Returning to the history of the German people at the close of the Middle Ages, volume three from page 116, the long dormancy of the emperorship between the death of Maximilian in 1519 and the accession of Emperor Charles had thrown Germany into a state of anarchy, which favored the proceedings of the Revolutionary Party, referring to the pagan humanists who had first rallied behind Reuschland as their vehicle for descent, attempting to undermine the authority of the Dominican monks, who also served as the inquisitors for the papacy in Germany. And he goes on to say, Luther's alliance with the Revolutionary Party was now an accomplished fact. In Sickingen, so he wrote to Hutton, 
he placed greater confidence in hope than in any one of the princes. It's my belief, he said in a letter to Spalatin at the beginning of June 1520, that at Rome they have all become idiotic, maniacal, insensate fools, stick stones, hell scenes, and devils. When the night Sylvester von Schomburg offered on June 11th to bring a hundred nobles to his assistance. Luther sent Sylvester's letters to Spalatin with the following words, the die is cast. I despise the wrath of the Romans as much as their favor. Never to all eternity will I again be reconciled to them, nor have any communion with them, though they should burn and damn me and all my belongings, and I too in return, unless there should be no fire to be had, will publicly damn and burn the whole popish crew that learned monster of heresy. Thus at last there will be an end of that fruitless observance of humility and submission by which I will no longer let the enemies of the gospel be magnified. Sylvester von Schomburg and Franz von Sickingen have set me at rest from the fear of men. Franz von Sickingen, he says in a letter to a brother of his order, guarantees me through Hutton his protection against all my enemies. Sylvester does the same with regard to the Franconian nobles. I have had a beautiful letter from him. Now I have no more fears, and I am bringing out a book against the Pope on the improvement of the Christian estate. I attack his holiness in it mercilessly, as though he were the Antichrist. Now, Luther is not the first Christian in Europe to label the Pope as an Antichrist. I don't know if the Hussites did it in the 15th century, but we have reproductions of artwork from Western Europe labeling the Pope as a devil and an Antichrist from the 15th century and the time of Pope Alexander VI, that's some years before Luther. Alexander VI was one of the allegedly and believably crypto-Jewish popes of the Borgia crime family. That's what they were. Returning to our source on page 117, this book, the book that Luther was just boasting about, this book, which appeared at the beginning of August 1520, was the address to the Christian nobility of the German nation and the actual declaration of the war of the Lutheran Hutton Revolutionary Party. With this, while we are certain that our source will cover it sufficiently, we must keep in mind that that same year, Leo X demanded a retraction from Luther, and Luther appeared at the Diet of Worms at the insistence of Charles V in 1521. So Luther has not completely denounced the traditional authorities, even if his book expresses that. To return to our source and the description of Luther's book, the proposals it contains with regard to the suppression of secular iniquities were such as to command sympathy for Luther from many who opposed his religious views. In the first place, he says, there is imperative need of agreement on the part of the German nation against the 
extravagant superfluity and costliness of clothing by which so many nobles and rich people have been impoverished. And he must be talking about the, the clothing and the robes worn by the bishops, the archbishops, the priests, the popes, their court members, the cardinals, whatever. Has not God given to us, as to other countries, wool, hair, flax, and other materials amply sufficient for seemly and comfortable clothing for all classes, so that we have no need to squander recklessly such terrible sums on silk, velvet, and cloth of gold, and all manner of other outlandish wares, except perhaps to keep the Jewish merchants happy. Similarly, there was, he said, no need for such large outlay on spices and groceries, which was one of the drains by which money was carried off from the German land, for the same Jewish merchants. But the greatest curse of the German nation was undoubtedly the practice of buying on credit. We think these are modern problems, and they're not. These problems have been around for as long as the Jews have been in Europe and long before that. If that was not allowed, many a one would have to go without buying his silk, velvet, cloth of gold, spices, and all the rest of the luxuries. Verily, this buying on credit was a sign and a token that the world was sold to the devil with heavy sins, which must ruin us both spiritually and temporally. Martin Luther, like the other German reformers, was opposed to usury. However, the nobles of Europe, as well as the emperors and the popes, had long borrowed on usury, and the Jews were usually the purveyors of money for them. A short time before this, at the Fifth Lateran Council, the Roman Church officially sanctioned the Monte Pipietta, which was basically a system of pawn shops operated by the Catholic Church, and they forbid Catholic bishops from restricting their operations locally. So usury at this time was also being brought to the commoners under the pretense of resistance to money lending. Returning to the history of the German people, from page 118 of volume 3, it was high time indeed to curb the Fuggers. The Fuggers were a prominent banking family in Germany. The Fuggers and other like companies. Could it possibly be godly and righteous that such a pile of kingly goods and treasures should be heaped up in the life of a human being? It would be far more godly to increase and spread agriculture and to restrict commerce. How much better were those who, according to the scriptures, tilled the earth and got their food out of it, following the Bible precept, in the sweat of thy brow thou shalt eat bread. In these statements, Luther was reiterating what the theological political economist of the 15th century had preached over and over again. There, then he goes on, there is the excess 
in eating and drinking, for which we Germans have a bad reputation in foreign lands as our special vice, and which cannot be mended by preaching only. So firmly has it taken root and got the mastery of us. The waste of money that it causes would be least evil, but in its train follow murder, adultery, theft, blasphemy, and every other vice. The temporal power should do something here, or it will come to pass, as Christ foretells, that the last day will come like a thief in the night, and ye shall be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, building and planting, buying and selling, just as things are going on now, and that so vigorously that I much fear the day of judgment is at hand, though we do not concern ourselves about it. And if Luther thought that a, a little gluttony and some foreign exchange was going to bring the last days upon Germany in the 1500s, he should see it now. Finally, he adds, is it not a lamentable thing that we Christians should have among us free and public brothels? If the, public, if the people of Israel, meaning the Old Testament Israel, maintained itself without such a disgrace, why should not a Christian nation be able to do as much? If so many of the small towns, villages, and hamlets can do without such houses, why cannot the great cities do the same? Hopefully it's because the Jews were concentrated in the great cities, right? All these public opinions, which are to be found in the concluding pages, are deserving of praise. But they did not form the substance of the address, the pit and marrow, of which was that Luther, associating himself closely with Hus, meaning Jan Hus, the great Czech reformer of a hundred years before Luther, associating himself closely with Hus and with Hutton, attacked in its foundations the whole existing fabric of church organization and made demands which aimed at the subversion of all traditional authority. Starting from the Hussite doctrine of universal priesthood, he declared that all Christians were of the priestly caste and we must interject that both Peter and Paul would have agreed. Whatever issues from baptism, he says, may boast that it has been consecrated priest, bishop, pope. There was no difference among Christians except the nominal one of office. And if it should happen that anyone appointed to one of these offices were deposed for abuses, he would be just what he was before he was ordained. If the community has deposed him, he becomes again a simple peasant or citizen, just like the rest. Since all Christians are priests, all have the power to judge and decide what is right or wrong in belief. The standard of judgment is holy writ which each one must interpret according to his reasonable faith. No one must let the spirit of liberty, as St. Paul calls it, be cowed by words invented by the Pope. On the contrary, it behoves every Christian to understand the faith that he accepts 
and to condemn all errors. Now, I can't for the life of me imagine what Luther means by holy writ, only because the King James Version of the Bible wasn't translated for another 90 years. That's a joke, right? And here, more than any place else where we have investigated Luther's writings, does he seem to be precisely following the scriptures? We know today that Luther is correct about the evils of international trade, the evils of usury, and the evils of an organized and privileged professional priesthood. But in spite of these things, rather than because of them, did the pagans and humanists in Germany throw their support behind Martin Luther. The humanists only wanted to overthrow the power of the papacy, and Martin Luther was already their chosen vehicle. But even our author seems not to understand the correct position of Luther on these theological issues and grasp its implications. As we return to our source on page 120, this peculiar priesthood of Luther's and this Christian community invested with hierarchical prestige, each member of which was, to, was free to construct his own creed according to his own interpretation of Scripture, were to be subject to the temporal power. For as much as the temporal power is ordained by God to punish the wicked and to protect the good, therefore it must be allowed to do its work unhindered on the whole Christian body without respect of persons, whether it strikes popes, bishops, priests, monks, nuns, or whom it will. Whatever ecclesiastical law has said to the contrary is only the invention of Romish arrogance. Luther was teaching, he was basically teaching Romans chapter 13, that government was a punishment from God. But at the same time, he doesn't quite phrase it that way because he seems to be purposely ingratiating the German princes. And he says, above all, when necessity demands it, the secular power should provide for the meeting of a truly free council. And in case of the popes opposing such an assembly and denouncing and anathematizing it, meaning cursing it, his proceeding should be treated with contempt like the behavior of a madman, and he himself must in turn be anathematized and placed under a ban. This free council, which is to be called together by the secular authority in defiance of the Pope, must reorganize the constitution of the church from its foundations and must liberate Germany from the Romish robbers, from the scandalous, devilish rule of the Romans. Rome was sucking out the Germans to an extent that it is a wonder that we have anything left to eat. The Pope lived in such pomp and splendor on the wealth of the Germans that whenever he goes out riding, he is accompanied by three or four thousand mule riders, more than the escort of any king or emperor. Small wonder if God would to rain brimstone and fire down on Rome and doom it to destruction. 
as he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, noble princes and sirs, how long will you suffer your land and your people to be the prey of these ravening wolves? Luther was not content with imitating the language of Curtis Rubianus and Hutton. He even surpassed it in his description of Rome which was such an iniquitous abode of plunder and theft, lying and cheating, that the rule of Antichrist himself could not be more abominably wicked. Meanwhile, since this devilish state of things is not merely open robbery, deceit, and tyranny, such as proceeds from the gates of hell, but also destroys Christianity, body and soul, we are bound to use all diligence to put a stop to it. If we wish to fight the Turks, let us begin here, where they are worst. At least Luther felt short of suggesting the introduction of the Turks as opposition to Rome. Either the secular power or a general council should prohibit for the future all payments of money to Rome and should abolish all papal commandants and reservations. Every courtling who comes from Rome should be strictly commanded to withdraw, to jump into the Rhine or the nearest river, and to administer a cold bath to the interdict, seal and letter and all. The German bishops must no longer be mere puppets and tools of the Pope. It should be decreed by an imperial law that no Episcopal mitre and no confirmation of any appointment shall for the future be obtained from Rome. Also, the reserved cases should be abolished and the oaths of allegiance to the Pope which bishops are compelled to take. All matters relating to ecclesiastical fights and benefices should be settled by the primate of Germany, and that at the time was the Archbishop of Mainz, by the primate of Germany with the assistance of a general consistory. And the translator's footnote says that the reserved cases, or casus reservati, refers to those great sins for which the Pope or the bishops claimed that only they could give absolution. And, and that's one of the frauds of the Catholic Church, because Christ has already absolved the children of Israel of their sins. Continuing with page 122 of our source, by proposals of this sort, Luther hoped to gain favor with the German church dignitaries, especially the Archbishop of Mayence, or Mainz, the German primate. His schemes for circumscribing the territory of the church and for depriving the Pope of the suzerainty of Naples would, he hoped, attach the emperor to his cause, while the nobles would be attracted by hopes of cathedrals and abbeys for their younger sons. Concerning church ordinances and ceremonies, he said, we should abolish all saints' days or keep them on Sundays. Festivals, church treasures, and ornamentation are offensive and pernicious. Anniversaries must be abolished or reduced in numbers. 
chapels and Feldkirchen, or field churches, raised to the ground, as it was to be feared that the many masses that had been endowed would provoke the wrath of God. It was advisable to endow no more, and to abolish, to abolish many already endowed. And there we see that Luther did not depart from the ceremony of the Mass, which is basically not found in the Bible. Oh, I'm sorry. That's what Jesus did at the Last Supper, right? All pilgrimages undertaken as good works must be forbidden. So we see how the Catholic Church defines good works when good works are actually helping your Christian brethren. The Catholic Church has also perverted that term. But if they were undertaken to gratify curiosity and a desire to see new lands, people might be left to do as they pleased. All fasts enjoined by the church must be abolished. The church punishments, such as interdicts, bans, suspension of priests, and so forth, had been introduced into the heavenly kingdom of Christ by the spirit of evil, and were odious plagues and curses, and interdict. More particularly was a greater crime than the strangling of twenty popes. Above all, the canon law must be swept away from the first letter of it to the last, particularly the decretals. Everything that the pontificate has instituted or ordained is calculated only to multiply sin and error. It is stated that there is no finer government in the world than that of the Turks. Now that's an extreme statement, but we will see why soon. Who have neither a spiritual nor a secular code of law, but only their Koran even if we don't like it. And it must be acknowledged that there is no more disgraceful system of rule than ours. With our canon law and our common law, whilst no class any longer obeys either natural reason or the Holy Scriptures. So that is why Luther admired the Turks, because they had a religious book and they lived by it, and it was their only law, and that's the way Christian should be. That's what he's saying here. May God give to us all, says Luther in conclusion, a Christ-like understanding, and to the Christian nobility in particular, a Christian mind and will to do, to do the best for our poor church. At this period, Luther appears to have had implicit confidence, not only in the nobles, but also in the Emperor Charles, Charles V. This is August of 1520. In the opening lines of his letter, he says, God has given us a noble young sovereign for our head, in order that many hearts may be roused to great and good hopes. With unsparing energy, Luther endeavored to stir up German national feeling against Italy and in favor of his own cause. According to him, the Italians were steeped in every kind of vice, and yet so proud and haughty that they looked upon the Germans as scarcely human. 
and there's evidence that the um, the Italian Renaissance was actually fomented by Murano Jews from Spain and Portugal, but we won't get into that just yet. Luther's address to the German nobility was a martial summons to the fiercest onslaught. Many of Luther's desired reforms are radical, proposing a German church which would actually be modeled after the Christian assemblies left to us by the original apostles. Of course, there were some elements of tradition which did not exist in the first century, and we would also get rid of the mass, the priests, and a few other things. But even the model that Luther offers seems not to have been employed ever since as early as Galerius's Edict of Toleration, and it was not employed as a result of the Reformation either. Others of his proposals sought to return the church to Christian principles, which an earlier Catholic church had actually upheld, such as the prohibitions against usury. However, Calvin, who sprung up right after Luther, was one notable reformer of Luther's time who accepted the practice of usury. And Calvinism captured Europe west of the Rhine, for the most part. This was the point of no return. From here, Martin Luther would either succeed or die trying. There were no other alternatives. The year following would once again contain some strange and unexpected turns of events, especially circling Ulrich von Hutten and Franz von Sickingen. We shall return here next week with further discussion of Luther's proposed reforms and the next stages of Martin Luther's Reformation. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening, and good night.